So, have you, this, this might be pertinent to some of you, but have you ever been sick or had an injury and not even realize it? Um, I know for some of you that's probably, like, why in the world would that be the case? That sounds like a weird question maybe, but it does happen. Um, I mean, maybe I'm the only one, but this has actually happened to me a couple times. Um, my best example actually happened a couple years ago. Uh, it's, honestly, it seems kind of ridiculous for me to think about this now um, because something was clearly not normal, but I kind of just thought things were. Um, There's a legitimate issue going on, and I didn't really see it. So basically, I was having issues when I was sneezing. Um, that sounds strange, but every time I would sneeze, I would have intense pain radiate through my arms. It would be just this like throbbing pain that would last for about like 15 to 20 seconds. And um, if you're like me, bef like before, I've learned now. But PSA, that's not normal. See a doctor if you experience that. But again, I did not see that as strange or like an issue that needed to be addressed. I, I mean, and I think I have possibly legitimate reasons for that. Like, for one, I pretty much experienced that for as long as I could remember. So I never knew a time when I didn't experience that. So I just kind of thought that that was normal, I guess. Um, but then second, like, it's not like I was sneezing all the time. So when it would happen, I'd be like, okay, yeah, like, there's the pain again. But then I wouldn't think about it again for a while. So all that to say... That's how things were going and had been going for years until um, a particular occasion when I was talking with a friend and this happened. So I was talking to uh, my friend Jenna and um, during our conversation I had a particularly strong sneeze come on and that led to especially bad pain and um, I must have like grimaced or something from the pain because she asked me what was wrong and um, I casually just mentioned, like, oh, yeah, the, the arm pain is a little bit worse than normal. And I, I'm saying it like that, like, oh, she knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like, this is normal pain that everyone experiences. Um, and so, understandably, she was rather confused by, by what I was saying. And so, she very lovingly let me know, that's not normal. I don't experience that. You probably shouldn't either maybe you should see a chiropractor because she thought that it was maybe a, a nerve issue. And so um, I took her advice and went and saw a chiropractor and um, like su surprise, surprise, we got, I got an x-ray and I had like a severely misaligned vertebrae in my neck. And so uh, the chiropractor did some adjustments over a course of time and uh, the pain went away. I don't experience that anymore. Um, so I share that embarrassing story because it highlights our need for medical professionals. Um, sometimes, especially when chronic issues are present in people's lives, something can be wrong and we don't even realize that it is. That's all we've known, and so we don't even realize that things could feel differently. So we need people there to notice and to treat our physical issues even when we don't see that they're issues ourselves. 
And when something is wrong, we need people in our lives to be able to say, okay, I see your symptoms, let's do some tests, here's the cause, and therefore, here's the treatment. Let's cure this, let's fix this problem. Doctors and nurses and other medical professionals are so important because that's exactly the work that they do with us. They help heal our physical ailments and conditions and things like that. And that's actually the same kind of work that we see James doing in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Um, Except instead of treating a physical condition, he's treating our souls. James is, in a sense, our spiritual doctor this morning. He's calling our attention to some symptoms that, in, that are present in our lives, and we might even be ignoring them. We might not even see them as a big issue. But he's calling our attention to them, and he, he is explaining to us in our passage what the cause of those symptoms is. And after he diagnoses that spiritual sickness for us, he offers us a cure and a treatment for it. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And keep that in mind as we look at the passage. Um, we're going to be looking at James 4, verses 1 through 10. That's on page 1012 in the Black Pew Bibles, um, if you want to turn there now. So again, like I said, keep, keep those things in mind as I'm reading it to us this morning. Think about James as the doctor of our souls this morning, and he's, he's treating a condition that he sees. So um, again, James 4, verses 1 through 10, follow along with me as I read that. It says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So do you remember what the traits of godly wisdom are? Um, David preached on them last week uh, in James, uh, James chapter 3, verse 17. It says that godly wisdom is pure. It is peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, those types of things. So now stop and consider. If two people are demonstrating those traits, if they're displaying that wisdom in their lives, are they going to be arguing and fighting with each other? Of course not. Even if two people disagree, which they could, they, can, they could disagree, 
those traits are still never going to lead them to fighting. Those kinds of traits lead to discussion when there is disagreement. They lead to mutual understanding. They lead to reconciliation, not fighting. So James is asking us in these verses, why are you fighting and arguing amongst yourselves? Why are you doing exactly what godly wisdom would not lead to? That is the symptom that he is calling our attention to. He wants us to notice that. The Christians that he was writing to have grown accustomed to being in conflict with one another, and they just see it as normal and maybe even okay. Or, perhaps, let's consider an alternative, perhaps they knew it was wrong. Maybe the Christians he's writing to know that their conflict and their quarreling and their fighting, maybe they know it's wrong, but they don't think that they could actually put a stop to that cycle. Maybe they feel hopeless about seeing any improvement. Can you relate to that? Do you have a relationship in your life that just drains you? Do you feel stuck in a conflict cycle with someone that you don't know how to get out of? It could be a family member, maybe a friend, a coworker, maybe a neighbor. We all have at least one relationship in our lives that we can probably think of that falls into these categories, guaranteed. And that is what James is writing to us about. He's calling us to change. He's calling us to not accept that as okay or right. And he is giving us hope for something better. Like the arm pain that I got when I was sneezing, we cannot and should not tolerate this behavior in ourselves. James is our soul physician and he's got a treatment plan for us, and that's what we see in these, in these verses. So let's listen to him as he gives that to us. My plan this morning is to take us through James's diagnosis and his treatment. And as we will see, the issue is worldliness. But that, when you dig deeper, finds its source in pride, and so we're going to consider those two things. And because of that, the cure is humility. And so we'll work our way through each of those things, and we'll see how James leads us through all of that. That is what James is ultimately calling us to. He's calling us to humility in this passage. My proposition this morning is based on that idea. Humble yourself before God because he is jealous for you. I'll say that again if, if people are taking notes. Humble yourself before God because he is jealous for you. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, I want you to take that away from it. Humble yourself before God because he is jealous for you. But again, before we get to the solution, we want to start by looking at what the problem is. What is our spiritual illness that James is addressing? He doesn't waste any time getting to that point. Verse 1 sets the stage by stating the symptom and then the cause. So look again with me at that verse. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? There's the symptom right there. That's the sign that something is wrong. That should be an indication to us that we aren't healthy, that something's off. But then he goes on. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the symptom he sees is the conflict between the church members. And what's the cause? It's the passions that are at war within them. He goes on in verse 4 to call those passions their friendship with the world. 
Um, and I'll use the term worldliness to communicate that same idea. Conflict is the product of worldliness. James goes on to describe in more detail what he means by worldliness and passions in the next couple of verses, if you want to look at that. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So right there, we learn a lot about the passions that he's talking about. He isn't just talking about the fact that we want things. He isn't saying that every desire that we have is an example of worldliness. He's talking about desires that, that they, that his audience, will stop at nothing to satisfy. In their minds, they're not just wants, they're needs. They are unwilling to live without them. So they will sin and do whatever they need to to get them. James isn't talking about murder in a literal sense here. If the church members were actually killing each other, this letter would look very different than it does. Um, No, they're not literally murdering, murdering each other. But he's saying that that's what their hearts are gravitating towards. They are, however, willing to harm, to belittle, to undermine, slander, maybe even steal from one another to get what they want. These are not just simple desires. This is idolatry. This is a hunger and a craving for something far beyond what a, normal, what a desire should be. That is what worldliness is. It's a commitment to one's own desires at the expense of others. And that was not just a problem for the Jewish Christians that James was writing to in this letter. That's a problem that we all experience. We all are worldly. What do you demand from the people in your life? What do you expect from them? Or let me put it another way. What makes you angry? We all get angry. Have you taken the time to stop and consider what is it that triggers you? What makes you angry? A lot of people don't realize that anger is actually a form of love. Obviously, it's not love for the person that we're getting angry at, but we get angry because something that we love is threatened or absent. So again, what makes you angry? When you're angry at your spouse or your children or your friends or a coworker, what are they withholding from you that you want? Chances are, it's not something that you have the right to demand from them. And it's certainly not something that you should be fighting them for. And that's exactly what we do in our anger. We hate and harm people that we should be loving and caring for. And it's all so that we can get what we want. Again, it is a a commitment to ourselves at the expense of others. That's what worldliness is. That's what James is saying here. And worldliness is also evident in our motives a lot of the time. Sometimes it can, we can struggle to understand, like, am I being worldly in this moment? Am I desiring something that I shouldn't, or am I desiring it too much? Well, verses 2 and 3 say, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is pointing out something here. The thing that we want might not actually be a bad thing, but sometimes our motives for wanting it are bad. Maybe we want it too much, or we want to do something evil with it. 
is it wrong to want someone to stop talking maybe at times and listen to what we have to share? Not necessarily. That's not fundamentally, that's not inherently a wrong desire. There, that could be a good thing. But what if we want them to listen just so that we can complain or so that we can get in the last word or say something hurtful to them? What if that's why we want them to be quiet? Is that all right? No, absolutely not. In that case, we want something that could be potentially good, but we want it so that we can sin with it. That's a wrong motive, a wrong desire. James is pointing out here that God actually refuses to, get, refuses to give us some of the things that we pray for because he knows that we intend to do bad with them. So he will withhold things at times that we are praying for because we want to use it to sin. And so out of his desire for our good, he withholds that from us at times. James is bringing that up in this passage. Redeemer, we must recognize our worldliness because community falls apart if worldliness isn't restrained or killed. It is a poison that warps people and relationships. It leads to church splits. It leads to divorce. It destroys friendships. It leads to estrangement and hatred and violence. And it's present in every single one of us. James is pointing it out to us so that we can address it and kill it in our own lives. Don't be okay with the conflict cycle at home or at work or in the church. Don't be okay with it. It's not okay. There really is a way to end it. And James is getting there soon in this passage. First, though, we need to dig a little bit deeper into worldliness so that the solution makes all the more sense to us. Because as I said, he starts by talking about conflict. Conflict is the symptom. The cause of it is worldliness. How does he get to humility at the end? So, so he, he takes us on that journey. So why are we worldly? What is at the heart of our worldliness? That's where James and we will go next. So look with me at verse four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Worldliness does not simply say something about our relationships with each other. It says something about our relationships with God, too. In fact, we should actually be saying that since worldliness puts us in opposition to God, it's naturally going to put us in opposition with each other also. So the effect that it has on our relationship with God affects our relationship with each other. That's how things always go. Things that harm our relationships with God will harm our relationships with others also. But the same is true in the opposite direction. When things heal and strengthen our bonds with God, that will oftentimes improve our relationships with each other. But getting back to this idea of worldliness, why? Why is worldliness enmity with God? Verse 5 answers that question. It says, Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Basically, James is explaining why worldliness 
is in opposition to God by reminding us of a key biblical truth here. God is jealous for us. Look at that again. He says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, that's an odd statement to make. What, what does James, what does that mean exactly? And the thing that's interesting is that this is actually not a direct scripture reference. There's not a specific verse in the Old Testament that this is specifically quoting. This is more of a paraphrase. It's, it's, it's communicating a very clear biblical teaching, but there's not a specific verse that he's, he's quoting here. But like I said, it is a biblical teaching. What he's saying is that God is our creator. He has breathed life into us and made us spiritual beings made in his image. He has designed us and he has given us purpose. And he is jealous to have that purpose get lived out in each and every one of our lives. But that's a, that's a weird term to use. What does it mean for God to be jealous of us, or jealous for us, I should say? For one, it doesn't mean that he's jealous of us. He's jealous for us. So it doesn't mean that he wants what we have. He made the entire universe what could he possibly want from us that he doesn't already have? Everything that he's made is already his. So everything that we have is already his. So it's not like he craves something from us that he doesn't already possess. It also doesn't mean that he is sinfully envious of us. God cannot sin. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. So no, that's not it either. What it means is that God at creation, specifically designed us with a purpose, like I already said. And he wants to see that purpose fulfilled in each and every one of us. So, of course, that begs the question, what is that purpose? I, I think of all verses, perhaps Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, sum that up best. And this is just speculation, of course, but I think James had this passage in mind when he was writing um, James 4. So Solomon, um, the author of Ecclesiastes, has just gotten done spending the last 11 chapters, basically, of the letter explaining how all earthly things are ultimately meaningless. He's indulged himself, he's pleased himself in everything that the earth can offer him, and what does he say? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all pointless. But after saying all of that, he finally comes around to saying, what isn't vanity and meaningless? What is the purpose? What is our purpose? Summed up by the wisest man in the world, as Solomon was. He says this. This is Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So there we have it. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Our purpose is to do the will of God and to live for him, not ourselves. 
that is fundamentally different from the perspective of the world, secular culture around us. The world tells us, the world wants us to believe that the world revolves around us, that it's about us, it's about what we want, what we need, what we think we need at least. Um, We need to make sure that we are happy and healthy and satisfied and have high self-esteem and all of these things. We are the center of the universe. That's what the world preaches to us each and every single day. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. The Bible teaches us that God is at the center of the universe, that he, because he is our creator and designer, has made us for the purpose of serving and honoring and glorifying him. He is at the center of the universe. We are not. Everything revolves around him, not each one of us. So friends, the root of worldliness is pride. That is why we make ourselves enemies of God. Think back to the definition that I gave earlier of what worldliness is. Worldliness is when we are committed to our own desires at the expense of others. So do you see then how worldliness is at its core and root pride? We are devoted to ourselves and what we want. Not God, not other people, us. God and others cease to be important. In in words that Chet has frequently used in sermons, we treat it like it's our world and we are God. And think about that for a moment. What could be more offensive to God than that? Than our pride. When we choose to live for ourselves and disregard his commandments, we are rejecting him, our creator, and the purpose for which he made us. We are also ignoring the fact that our very existence is dependent upon him. If he wanted to, he could erase all of creation just by stopping sustaining it. We are utterly and totally dependent upon him each and every moment and each and every day. We are small and insignificant compared to him utterly reliant upon him, and yet we choose to serve ourselves rather than him. So we are not only failing to appreciate him for the life that he gives us, but in fact, we're actually claiming to be superior to him when we choose to live for ourselves rather than the purpose for which he made us. That is an incredible offense to God. Nothing could be more offensive or rude or spiteful to him. Redeemer, we must not treat that lightly. If there is conflict amongst us, we must take it seriously, not just because it's bad for our community and for our fellowship and for our relationships. Yes, let's take it seriously because of that. But even more than that, we must take it seriously because it's evidence of pride in our own hearts that is far more dangerous, that is far worse than just our relationship struggling. Nothing is worse than pride. Realize that because we are designed to serve God, that is actually what is best for us. It is not good for us to live for ourselves. Our lives are disordered if we serve anyone or anything other than God. And it's like our bodies. If we force our bodies to do something 
that, we aren't, that's, that they're not designed to do, if you hyperextend your arm, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be injured. Your body's going to start to break down because that's not what it's supposed to do. We'll injure ourselves. The same is true for our souls when we live for ourselves, when in our pride we choose to honor ourselves, to glorify ourselves rather than our creator and maker. We are doing harm to ourselves because we are separating ourselves from him who we need. It might feel good in the moment to do it, but make no mistake, it is killing you. It is alluring but deadly. When I was reflecting on this, I I was thinking a lot actually about just like the effects of drugs in people's lives. Think about how devastating it is. Um, If you've ever known or been around someone with a drug addiction, it's devastating to see the effects of it. It's heartbreaking to see how it destroys people. But the thing that's even more, like, even more mind-boggling about it, not, not just heartbreaking, but just unbelievable, is how even while it's destroying people's lives, they run back to, they run back to their addiction. They keep going back to the drugs that they feel like they need. The fact that people are willing to harm themselves and others for a high should show us how strong those addictions are as people on the outside can clearly see how terrible the drugs are for the people, the people locked in the addiction can can almost seem powerless against them. They want something that's killing them. And it seems so irrational. But friends, we have the same kind of relationship with our pride. It feels good to win an argument. It's satisfying to hurt someone when they've hurt us. We love having the world revolve around us each day. We are just as addicted to pride as any addict is dependent upon a drug. But you guys, our pride can have far more devastating effects than any drug can have. That's something that we fail to recognize a lot of the time. Drugs can only harm your body. Pride destroys the soul. It is far more deadly far more subtle, and far more dangerous, therefore. Please realize that there is no point in your life when pride is not your greatest danger, your greatest threat, and your greatest enemy. If you think otherwise, then you should be even more fearful about your own condition because then you're becoming numbed to the pride that you're experiencing in your own heart. In our pride, we are pitting ourselves against God. And trust me, none of us can win that fight against him. So what do we do about that? What do we do about our pride? What is our hope against such a deadly issue? James, like I said, our physician, gives us a solution in the remaining verses. Look with me at verse 6 in James 4. He says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friends, our pride is devastating, but there is an answer to it. There is hope. God offers grace. We can't fix ourselves, but because God offers grace, he can fix us. He can heal us. 
He provides the treatment and cure for us that we need and cannot provide to ourselves. And who does he offer that to? He gives grace to the humble, as he says in verse 6. James's solution is humility. So as verse 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Instead of giving into temptation and doing simply what pleases you, choose to do what pleases God. That is what James is saying. Live for God, not just your own desires. If we do, God will help us to end the conflict cycles that we lock ourselves into. He will help us to kill our worldliness. He will help us to live the lives that we were always designed to live for him. And he will give us the joy and pleasure and satisfaction that comes with that. As verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Take comfort and delight in that promise. But I think it's important to take time to consider what exactly is humility. He's calling us to humble ourselves. He's calling us to prize and to embrace humility. So what is humility? Because I think a lot of notions of what that is can float around. Society can tell us a whole lot of different things about what humility is. But what is humility in a biblical sense? I want to make sure that we all understand it rightly. A lot of the time we can think of humility as like having low self-esteem or just not speaking up for ourselves. We can think that being humble means that we're a pushover or we're a people pleaser. Um, A lot of the time humility can have a lot of negative connotations or associations with it. That is the complete opposite of what humility is though. The Bible cherishes humility. It prizes it. It esteems it above all else. So we want to understand, we want to have that picture of humility. We want to see it for the beauty that it is. Now, um, this book, Humility, True Greatness, this is actually where I I got the title for my sermon. Um, This book is by C.J. Mahaney. I wanted to point it out because it's fantastic. If you want to, like if you, If I finish up this sermon and you're thinking to yourself, like, I want to take this more seriously. I want to think more about this in my own life. I want to be a more humble person. Then this is a great place to start in working towards that. It's super short. Um, I mean, so it's it's like 140-something pages. But they're very small pages, and it's big print. So it's a very quick read, so that's great. Um, But it's... It's an incredible like, primer into what humility is. And he does an excellent job of painting a picture of how beautiful and great true humility is. And um, in, in this book, another reason I bring it up is because in it, C.J. Mahaney gives an excellent definition for humility. He says this, when answering the question, what is humility? He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Again, I think that definition is excellent, so I want to say it again. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So if you want to kill worldliness and pride in your own life, that's what you want to do. 
honestly assess yourself in light of God's holiness and your sinfulness. Look with me at verse 9 in James 4. Uh, James says this, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, when I read that at the beginning of the sermon, did that, did that verse stick out to you um, when I read it earlier? I'd actually be surprised if it didn't. Um, it's not every day that you read a passage in Scripture that actually commands us to be joyless and gloomy. That's actually usually the opposite of what Scripture calls us to. Um, so, so what is James saying here? What is he getting at? Well, I, I think Mahaney's definition for humility helps shed light on why this is what James says, why James goes here, why he says that. It almost seems kind of just like out of the blue, out of left field that he throws in this verse. But if we really understand humility rightly, it makes total sense why he says that. Think back to uh, Mahaney's definition. It's Humility is honestly assessing yourself in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Friends, if we are humble people, we must see our sin honestly and clearly. We must not minimize it. We must not make it seem like it's not as bad as it really is. We must not excuse it. To be humble we must be grieved by the depths and seriousness of our sin. There's no way around it. You cannot be humble if you are not grieved by your sin. If you do not see yourself in total contrast with our holy and amazing God. If you don't see your sin that way, you'll think of yourself as better than you really are. You will think of yourself as entitled to things that you don't actually deserve. That's what James is getting at in this verse. He's telling us to be grieved by our sin. He's not just telling us to be just sad all the time and unhappy. No, but he is calling us to see our sin and to be sobered by the reality of it. He wants us to see how offensive we are to God, the God who made us and who loves us. He wants us to see that unlike God who is holy and perfect and pure and good, we are unholy and wicked people. There's nothing that we do that is not stained by sin and impurity. All of our desires are affected by it. John Newton, um, a pastor and hymn writer who, um, he wrote a lot of letters, I have been profoundly impacted by his ministry. He lived in um, the 19th century, but he describes humility and the greatness of it um, well in one of his letters. He says this, whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry nor harsh or critical of others. He will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners knowing that is, if there is a difference between them, between himself and that other person, it is grace alone which has made it. It knows, he knows, that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. 
and under all trials and afflictions, he will look at the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. Notice that sober humility in that description. Newton says, he lays his mouth in the dust amidst his hardships, amidst his sufferings, because he's acknowledging that he suffers far less than he deserves. That is the kind of attitude that James is calling us to in verse 9. Redeemer, it's not comfortable or fun for us to look at our sin and face it head on. Who wants to see the bad in themselves? None of us want to do that. It's our natural inclination to hide our sin, to minimize it, to excuse it. But friends, what good does it do to ignore it and to do that? It is there and it is real and it will kill us whether we're willing to admit its existence or not. God opposes the proud, as James 4 says, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's seek his grace. Let's acknowledge our sin and expect the grace of God to help change and grow us. And more than that, most importantly, consider Christ. We could preach a whole sermon series just on the humility of Jesus Christ. Not only is he the embodiment of humility and its greatest example, but it was through the most humble act in all of creation that he made God's grace possible for us. As Mark 10, verses 42 through 45 say, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And so he's acknowledging, Jesus is saying, these are what the Gentile leaders do. This is what greatness looks like, to lord your authority over other people. That's what the world is saying. But, Jesus continues, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not deserve to face persecution. He did not deserve to face ridicule. He did not deserve to face physical torture and public embarrassment or hatred. If there was anyone in all of existence that did not deserve any of those things in any way or degree, it is Jesus Christ. He is the reason every one of us has life. Think about Colossians 1 says that all things were created through him and for him. So think about that. The hands of the people that hit him were only able to do so because he created them and was sustaining them at the very moment when they were doing him harm. The mouths that ridiculed him and shamed him and lied about him, they were only able to do so 
because he, at that very moment, was sustaining the very breath in their lungs. None of that was acknowledged as he suffered and died. The king and sustainer of all things was tortured and belittled by his own creation as he sustained it. And not only just sustained it, but was doing the greatest act of love imaginable. Can you imagine that? The, the, the pain that he experienced in that moment, the anguish of that? Think about a time when you did something incredibly loving for someone else. You made some sort of sacrifice for them. You went out of your way to benefit and to love them. But then imagine them turning around and hating you for doing it. And hating you for no reason. Instead of thanking you, they slander you and accuse you of harm. Can you imagine how infuriating that would be? Maybe you've, maybe you've yourself experienced a situation like that in your own life. When you have done something out of love for someone else and they have turned around and hurt you for doing it, accused you of wrongdoing because of it. Maybe If you've experienced that, do you remember how mad that made you? Well, that feeling doesn't even begin to compare to what actually happened to Jesus. But what was his response? It wasn't anger. It was humility. It was love. It was compassion on those who were killing him. He did not defend himself. He simply continued to face the torment. And he did it because he knew that his death could offer them life, could offer us life. He endured the greatest humiliation possible so that we could receive grace if we have faith in him. In our pride, we deserve hell. But Jesus endured the torments of the proud so that they could be given what they don't deserve. Don't gloss over that. Your sin is so bad that someone had to die for it. We can hope for eternal life, not because we are humble, but because Jesus humbled himself on the cross for us. Please understand that we are not saved by our own humility. It's not by making ourselves humble that God then gives us grace. I mean, think back to um, verse six again. It says, but he gives more grace. So to so realize that any humility that you have is itself already a work of God's grace in your life. He just continues to provide you grace after the fact. Also, any humility in our hearts is God's grace to us. Um, so know that you are not saved by your own humility. None of us are humble. For us to claim that we're humble is to say that like a, a bucket of water is is holding as much water as like an ocean is. It's, it's just a ridiculous comparison. We do not understand the seriousness and depth of our own sins. We do not. We are not humble. But that's, but that's, the, that's the point. The gospel reminds us that in our pride, Christ humbled himself for us. And that offers us and empowers us the ability 
to pursue humility. That is the gospel. The one who should have been worshipped was instead a servant to all. There's no greater act of humility than that. So friends, we must redefine greatness and beauty in our own minds if we want to end conflict, if we want to kill worldliness, if we want to overcome our pride. That is what James is calling us to. He wants us to view it in terms of the gospel. Being great is not a matter of success or strength. Someone is not great simply because they are popular or because they're gifted or because they're intensely ambitious. Think about who you admire and why you admire them. Is it because they're humble? It should be. Those who are truly great are those who are humble. They are the ones who recognize they deserve nothing because of their sin, but they rejoice in knowing that they have been given everything because of Jesus, not because of themselves. They want to obey God even when it causes them suffering and pain to choose choose him him, him, rather than themselves. They are the ones who want to be just like Jesus. They want to be servants and slaves to all. Those are the people who are truly great. So let's prize and esteem humility in each other. Let's long to see that in ourselves and let's admire that trait in others. But I want to provide a little bit more practical steps what does it practically look like to be humble? I, I'm describing what humility is, what it, but what practically would this look like, especially in terms of conflict, since that, that's what got James talking about this in the first place. Think back to 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's the symptom that he sees. So what would, instead of being proud and worldly that leads to fights and quarreling and conflict, what would the alternative look What would dealing with conflict look like in humility rather than pride? Just a couple of examples. There's so much more that could be said about this, but just a couple of examples that came to my mind. The humble person's speech will build up, not tear down. And they will wait to speak until they can do it out of love, not anger. Trust me, I know when I'm angry, I think like the words that I want to say to the other person are exactly what needs to be said to them. I think I am right. I think that I know I'm seeing things completely clearly. That's how we are in our anger. But the humble person recognizes, okay, I'm anger. What I want to say is probably not motivated by love. So I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna remain quiet and consider, is this profitable Will this build up? And if so, then let me share it. But if not, I'm going to hold my tongue. The humble person will genuinely consider the other person's viewpoint and give them the benefit of the doubt. The humble person will not demand things of others because they realize they don't deserve anything themselves. The humble person will serve even when no one is serving them. The humble person will show patience 
because they know how patient God has needed to be with them. The humble person will be quick to confess sin and ask for forgiveness even when they are sinned against. And even if that confession is not reciprocated, they desire to acknowledge their sin and to to be reconciled and to be forgiven of it. And in all of that, the humble person is joyful because they know he or she knows that they are getting to walk in humility beside their Lord and Savior. They're getting to be like their God. They're getting to imitate him, the true and great Lord and King. And that's, that's our greatest gift of all, being able to be like him. Don't forget how our passage in James 4 ends. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Redeemer, our humility is our exaltation. You might not feel rewarded for your humility in the moment. When you choose that over your pride, you might have to take a step and humble yourself to another person. And that might be hard, that might be embarrassing, that might mean that you are exposed and vulnerable before them and they're not doing the same in return. So you might not feel very rewarded for your humility in that moment. In fact, you might never feel rewarded for that in this life. That reward might not come now. But James promises us, just as Jesus did, that we will be rewarded for it. Set your eyes on eternal glory, not earthly glory. When Jesus returns and all is made clear in the final judgment, you will not regret a single occasion in which you humbled yourself before God and others. You will never regret that, ever. Even if that is the most painful thing that you have ever done in your life, it might be excruciating now, but you will not regret it when Christ returns. That's amazing to think about. It's amazing to meditate on that and to, to remember that we can pursue humility with joy and thanksgiving and eagerness for the eternal weight of glory that is to come. So let's humble ourselves before God because he is jealous for us. Would you pray with me?